Our text this morning is the end of chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. It's a very familiar passage, but I trust the Lord will teach us what He has in store for us this morning. Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 42. This is indeed the very Word of God. It is sufficient, it is inerrant, and it is authoritative. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Let's pray for God's blessing upon His Word. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that You would take Your Word, that You would plant it deep within our hearts. We ask, O Lord, that You would cause it to grow 10, 20, 100 fold in our lives. We ask that you would give us attention, that you would prick our consciences where we need it, and that you would encourage and lift us up. We ask all this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Have you ever reminisced, thought back to a a simpler better day. For so many years that was true of America, we reminisced about the 1950s. Forgot children hiding under desks in nuclear training. Forgot difficulties in our cities. Forgot difficulties in race relations. And looked back wistfully just to what we thought was good. Now as years go on, I find myself reminiscing about the 1980s. That may not be that long ago for some of you, but for me, that was a different, simpler time. It was a time in which we were achieving victory over the Soviet Union. It was a time in which it seemed that it could be possible that there could be continual, uninterrupted peace. If you had asked me in 1989 that we would have, would we have threat levels announced on the hour in our airports, I would have thought you were foolish. You see, we like to look back to times and remember what is good. And this is important. This is one of the ways that God teaches us. We can't forget what's bad, but we need to look back and see what is good. And that's what Acts 2, the end of the chapter, is about. I'm not going to dwell on the bad. We'll get to it soon enough, where there are charges of blasphemy, arrests, lying to the Holy Spirit, all sorts of horrible things going on in this congregation. 
But for now, I want us to dwell upon what the Lord has put in front of us, which is, in a sense, a model church, a model community of the people of God. And this is important for us because, as I have said, Acts is a book about the mission of the church, about what it means to be the church. The people who were living in the time of Acts were not living in a time much different than we are. A hostile government, a very secular society, rampant, horrible sexual morals, thievery. Their life is our life. And so as we see the Lord use them, we can then see how the Lord would use us and what our community should look like as well. And so what I would like us to see this morning are four aspects of the people of God. Not only what they looked like in Acts, but what we should look like. And that is first, to be a people who are eager for God's truth. A people who are eager, who go after, who run after God's truth. But not just truth in a vacuum, because you see, we need to be a people who are also eager for God's people. We desire to be around God's people. We desire to have God's truth and to see it grow amongst God's people. Thirdly, we will see that the people of God should be eager for God's worship. Eager for the worship of God. It should be something that lights our fire, that gets us up out of bed in the morning, that excites us and thrills us. And then finally, all three of these things combine to make us a people who are eager for God's mission, for the mission that the Lord has laid in front of us. Well, let's begin then by looking at a people who are eager for God's truth. This is hard to miss in this passage because it comes right out of in the front. Look at verse 42. And they... Now, who are the they here? The they are at least the 120 and some portion of the 3,000 who were saved. Some may have gone back to their hometowns, but we're looking at a group that has exploded in growth. This is not a group that can just say, well, you know, we've always done it this way. We've always done church this way. Because they might be saying that by looking to each other and say, how did we do church last week? How did you all do church last week? We've never done church. That's who they are. And they are marked by a devotion, by a passion, by a perseverance. We have seen this word devoted before. We have seen it in verse 14 of chapter 1. When the apostles and those who are with them are described as being devoted to prayer. And you remember we said that is not just simply giving themselves to prayer. It is something that is a part of their life. It is a passion. They persevere in it. And here the church is devoting themselves first and foremost to the apostles' teaching. They are devoting themselves to teaching. Now in our day and age that is a radical thing. It is being countercultural to the max. If you devote yourself to the teaching of the apostles, you are much more countercultural than any number of tattoos or piercings. People will look at you and they say, What? You do what? You're devoted? So, what does this mean? It means they are attached to the teaching, they are persevering in the teaching of the apostles. But do not forget the context. What has just happened? What has just happened is perhaps the first and greatest miracle of the church. The disciples speak and they are heard 
They speak in every tongue and language. And that is followed up by 3,000 being saved. This is a mighty day. This is a kind of day that you circle on your calendar and you remember. You think, wow, if we could only have something like that again. But you see, the Christians here, they're not trying to recreate Pentecost. They're not trying to recreate speaking in tongues. They're not trying to recreate massive conversions. What they are trying to do is to devote themselves to the teaching of the apostles. Because it's that teaching that saves. That teaching that describes the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they devote themselves to this. How unlike our age is this? You don't even need me to list off the dozens and dozens of evangelical fads we have seen in the last 10 years. Something is successful. Someone writes a successful book. Every church in America has to have a Bible study on that book. Because then we can recreate what happened. There is a successful men's rally. Every town in America has to have the same men's rally with the same music and the same speakers. Because again, we could perhaps recreate that event. But you see, the apostles here and the Christians had the greatest event in the history of the church, the birth of the church, and they are not seeking to recreate it. So we should learn from them. We should be glad when God blesses us in tangible ways and blesses us in ways that we can see and are awe-inspired. But we should not dwell on them. We should dwell on the teaching of the one who is behind those events. That's what the people of God are doing. And they're dwelling on this apostolic teaching. And this means more than simply that it came from the apostles. It is more than simply at the first Presbyterian church of Jerusalem in their bulletin. It said Sunday school classes, the apostle James on food, the apostle Peter on suffering. No, it's more than that. This is apostolic teaching. It had Jesus Christ's stamp of authority on it. Because you remember, Jesus said he would send his spirit not only to give them power, but to give them remembrance of everything he had taught them. That's the Holy Spirit's job. It's the Holy Spirit's job today with you and with me to illumine this word of God, to bring the word of Jesus into our hearts. And so this is the very teaching of Jesus that they have. It is authoritative. This is why the selection of another apostle in Acts 1 was so important. Because they had to carry on Jesus' teaching. It's the same principle that you and I live with today. What you say? Fred, I haven't met the apostle Philip lately. Haven't talked to Nathaniel lately. What do you mean? Do you have one of these in your hand? Call a Bible, right? Do you know how this came to be in your hand? Do you think they took the letters that Paul wrote and they threw them up in the air and the ones that landed on one side, they stuck in the Bible? No, of course not. You know that. In order to be included in the scriptures, it had to be a writing of apostolic authority. It had to either be written by an apostle or by an assistant of an apostle, Luke with Paul, Mark, with Peter. 
You see, that's what we have today. We have apostolic teaching. It is the very teaching of Jesus. It is authoritative for us. This Bible is not just full of wise maxims. It's not just full of good cocktail conversation where we can say what every word we think means to us. No, this is the authoritative word of Jesus Christ. And you, Christian, must devote yourself to it. It's not just the pastor's job. All of us must devote ourselves, young and old, to the teaching of Jesus Christ. And it was obvious that this authority was passed on. Because as we see here in verse 43, awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done, how? Through the apostles. You see, the Lord brought about signs and wonders to authenticate the teaching of the apostles. And that's why he sent those signs and wonders through the apostles. So often today in our modern world, we get hung up on the sign and miss the substance. The things that are miraculous, the things that are out of the ordinary, are to give testimony to the authority of God's word. And that's what the apostles had. They had authority. And the early church believed in that authority. We're going to see in weeks to come that the early church risked death and imprisonment because Peter said, this is what we must believe. And because John said, this is what we must do. They didn't risk not getting invited to a birthday party at work or having a friend or a co-worker maybe walk the other direction. No, they risked all. And so should we because this authority is given from God. This is a foundation for the church because as we will see, it is not simply that the word of God is first mentioned here. It is foundational. Because if we are to know God, if we are to encourage each other, if we are to witness to the world, we must know the scriptures. And so I ask you this question. Is the Bible boring for you? Do you read it because you feel you have to? You look and you're a little guilt-ridden because you've got one of those read through the Bible in a year and the whole month of April has no check marks. And you promise yourself what you will do is, as soon as you get a good cup of coffee, you will sit down and read for the next seven hours and catch yourself back up. You see, if the Word of God is boring for you, and I'm also talking to kids, if the Word of God is boring to you, then you need to check yourself. You need to ask yourself the question, do I love the things of God? Do I love the Lord? Do I want to serve the Lord? Because this is perhaps the best evidence of a heart that is redeemed and seeks to please the Lord. A love for His Word. To hear from Him. To know Him. To spend time with Him. This is an eagerness that should mark the people of God through all the ages. The second thing that we see here is there is not just an eagerness for the truth. There is also an eagerness for God's people. And this is remarkable because we live in a day and age in which there is no community. You may have heard me describe it. One evidence of that is when many of us were younger, there were beautiful, large, spacious front porches. Weren't there? People walked down the street. 
You'd sit in your rocking chair. You'd talk. Maybe even a few years earlier than that, you wouldn't go to the grocery store to get your milk. You'd just put out a milk box and you'd talk with the milkman. And the mailman didn't drive by in a car. He walked and he handed and spoke to you. There's a lack of community. And the church does not fix that community simply with learning the truth. If that were true, then monasteries would be teeming centers of vibrant community. And they weren't. You see, we need to take that truth and to apply it in the context of God's people. And so we see they not only devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, but also to fellowship. Now, fellowship here is a word you have heard before in the Greek, koinonia. We've talked about it before in Philippians, and we've seen it in other places. It means common participation. We might even say it means community. That's what fellowship means. It means a common participation, first and foremost, in God. That is what draws the people of God together. We have a commonality, a common pursuit, a common love of God. It's not a common love of NASCAR, or golf, or sewing, or scrapbooking, or football. We may have those things in common and enjoy them together, but the thing that brings us together is a common love for the Lord. But there's another commonality that flows out from that. It's a common love for each other as well. As we see each other having value as made in the image of God and redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. How can we push aside someone whom Jesus Christ shed his blood for? This is what our community is. And this is made stronger. This reality is made stronger because of our common spiritual realities as we seek to be better fathers, better mothers, better children, better employees. We come together and encourage one another around God's Word. You see, it begins with our commonality, our fellowship with the Lord. And then it brings fellowship to each other. There is a saying... The stronger the vertical fellowship, the stronger the horizontal fellowship will be. And this is very true. It's one of the reasons why they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Because they wanted a strong relationship with God that they might have a strong relationship with each other. Now, fellowship is often mistaken for other things. There are those who come in and say, well, I know what fellowship is. And they're wrong. There's the famous passage from this verse that says, I know what fellowship is. What the Christians do, that's communism. They all shared, see? They gave to one another. Except for there's a few things missing. Like force and jackboots and pressure and a commissars. You see... Communism and socialism is not Christianity. It's just another government system. Neither is capitalism Christianity. It's just another economic system. But you see, what they had was real and deep fellowship. No one was forced to give. Generosity flowed out of their hearts. Could you imagine gleefully writing a check and sticking it in the envelope to send off to the IRS? 
If you can't, then don't think that's what the church was like. Because the church was more like, you can't wait. You just got a bonus at work. Or you just had a good investment pan out. And you can't wait to share it with someone you know is in need. You're excited about it. That's what the church is like. Fellowship is not about force. It's not merely about sharing things. It's also not exclusive. You see, for many of us and for most of our society, at times, fellowship is exclusive. We have a fellowship around basketball. And woe betide the man or woman who walks in the room that doesn't like basketball. Get out! Can't you see we're trying to pay attention to the game? Fellowship does not take a small group and say, well, we have our own fellowship together. We have enough for us. You don't need to come in. You know, it's the kind of thing that happens when there's a group of people standing, talking, and someone walks up and they just sort of turn this way and block them off. We've got enough fellowship, thank you. This kind of fellowship is dangerous. And brothers and sisters, young brothers and sisters, it is most dangerous at the high school, junior high, and college ages. Where we feel we have enough fellowship because our friends like the things that we like and we don't need to be bothered with others. But it's not just young adults. It happens with men too. It happens with ladies, too. Fellowship is not exclusive. It is inclusive. They were all together from all sorts of walks of life. Some were rich and could sell things. Some were poor and needed money to eat. Some were from Jerusalem. Some were from the hinterlands. And they all were together in one community. The word here that Luke uses to describe how they were all together is a word that is also used in the discussion of the Lord's Supper. You may expect that. It's also a word that's used in the context of marriage. You know the passage where Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says, Now do not separate except for, for a time of prayer, lest Satan come in. And then he says, and then when you come together, same word, same phrase. It's a very intimate kind of fellowship. It's a sharing of life. It is not simply a how do you do. And that leads us to the next thing. Fellowship is not social. The sum of fellowship, dear Presbyterians, is not food. It is not. Fellowship is not the same 30-second conversation each Sunday morning. You may think it is, but it is not. Fellowship is much deeper. It may begin there. Meals can certainly be a part of it. Meals were a part of it in Acts. They gathered together in homes and had meals. There's nothing wrong with fellowship around a meal. But it goes beyond the mere social. It's asking questions like, how can I pray for you? Do you need help with something? I went through that before. What do you think the Lord meant? When Paul wrote this, how do you think is the best way to handle this in the culture? You see, it is a deep-seated bonding. That is what fellowship is. 
And that's why it is a significant part of the church. You see, they had this fellowship day by day, Acts tells us. And they were opening up their homes to one another. This is significant. In our society, it is a chore to contact people day by day, isn't it? Even though 200 years ago, you would have had to get the horse out, feed him, hitch up the wagon, go over the dirt road, and talk to them. Today, you can call them. You don't even have to call them in their home because they have a cell phone. Today, you can email them. You don't even have to email them at their computer because they have one on their phone. There's video phones. You could be old-fashioned and write a letter or a card. There are so many ways in which we can build up this fellowship to be thinking of one another day by day. Something as simple as going down the prayer list day by day, being reminded of what we mean to each other. And it's not surprising then that the Lord's Supper first grew up in this context. We know this from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, that there was a feast and they would get together and they would eat and they would enjoy each other and that would be a time in which they would celebrate the Lord's Supper. That's what's happening here in Acts 2. This is not a normative description of how we must do the Lord's Supper, that we must must have the Lord's Supper each week. Because if that's the case, we must have the Lord's Supper each day. Because that's what they did. But the Lord's Supper must be a central part of our community. It brings us together and it reminds us of who the Lord is. We must be eager, not only for God's truth, but for God's people. And when we have that kind of eagerness, we cannot help but see the one who has brought this all about that this has been brought about by the Lord. All we have to do is go back one verse, beloved, to verse 41. They received His word and they were baptized. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And how were they added? It was by the power of the Spirit. It's what we see in verse 47. It was the Lord who was adding to their number. It was not Peter. It was not John. They were not having an evangelism race, keeping tallies. It was the Lord at work. And when we see the Lord is at work, then that draws us to Him. And so, then we must be not only devoted to the apostles' teaching, not only devoted to fellowship, but we must be devoted to prayers. Now, do you notice something a little odd in this sentence? They're not just devoted to prayers, are they? They're devoted to The prayers. And that's there for a reason. It's actually in the Greek. The article is supposed to be there. You see, they took prayer very seriously. In Judaism, the people of God under the Old Testament had many, many set times for prayer. Each day, each week. Because they didn't want to forget to pray. Do you have a methodical plan for your prayer life? Or do you just pray when you feel like it? Or when the spirit you think moves? But do you systematically pray for the sick? For the hurting? For our nation? For the advance of the gospel? For your ministers? For your officers? For your teachers? You see, they were devoted to prayer. 
Their lives were lives of prayer. And there were not just set times of prayer by themselves. There were set times of prayer with each other. That's what they were doing in Acts 1. They were gathering together for prayer. Luke is concerned about the community of God. He writes an entire book of Acts about the advance of the church. And as you know, from Luke and from Acts, he relishes describing how the poor and women and Gentiles and others are brought into the community. So it shouldn't surprise us to know that fully half of all the mentions of prayer in the New Testament are in either Luke or Acts. Think about that. Luke is devoted to prayer because he knows it binds a community together. But they didn't just pray. They also worshipped. They worshipped daily in the temple. Now think about that. How many of us, even those of us that live very close, would come daily to worship? If we called a worship service each weekday at 7 a.m. or at noon or at 7 p.m. They were that devoted to each other and to the worship of God that daily they went into the temple. And this kind of devotion brought about a change. It was seen in their lives. Look at this phrase here it says. In verse 43. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now, this word awe is, in a sense, a bad translation. But it's a catch-22. Because this word really needs to be translated two ways at the same time. It's a word that means awe. But it's also a word that means fear. And it had that reaction in different people. You see... In those who believed, it struck awe in their hearts about the living God. And it reminds us that when the 3,000 were saved, this was not a flash in the pan. This was not a temporary twinge of conscience. They were awestruck days, weeks, months later at what the Lord had done in their midst. Do you have that kind of awe of the living God? See, ironically... The more mature a Christian you are, the longer you have been a Christian, the greater temptation it is not to be awestruck by the living God. Because you've been to church 453 times. You've read through the Bible in a year 15 times. You've held 16,432 daily devotions. But you see, the call for us in the community of God is to be awestruck by God, to seek Him. Because, you see, those who are not in the community of God were struck in another way. They had fear. Have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus Christ is crucified? The apostles are afraid of being put into prison. And they preach and teach publicly that only a couple of them are killed? That this church movement isn't shut down immediately? They're out in the temple day after day. And it doesn't say they went into the temple daily and then they went home and bound their wounds and buried the dead. Every single day they were in the public square, we might say, witnessing and testifying to Jesus Christ. 
going in like Peter and saying, you killed him. And nothing happens. It's because God struck fear into their opponents. This is a God worthy of our worship. He is powerful. Even when you cannot see him, beloved, he is powerfully on your side. This is the living God. And this all leads to praise. Look at what they do. They go out and they're in the temple. They're out and about. And with generous hearts, they're taking in food and they are praising the Lord. Singing God's praises. What would it be like if that's what marked our community? Some of you may have heard this story that Benjamin Franklin, the famous skeptic and atheist, was struck after George Whitfield came through his area and preached sermons and people were converted. Franklin said he could go out and in the streets he would see families walking, singing psalms. You would see men standing together, singing God's praises out in the public. Could you imagine that happening on the corner of Highland Knowles and Mason? Or outside the mall? What would the world be like if that was the kind of passion we had as God's people? You see, we need to take the praise of the Lord that we have in our hearts and it should be manifest to others. It doesn't mean we all have to sing psalms. Some of us shouldn't sing publicly unaccompanied ever. Now, you could probably get in a schedule and Gladys could follow you around. We'll get her some kind of small mobile keyboard. But that's not the point. It's not a a checklist to check off. It's that our hearts should well up with praise that everyone around us should see. Why are you in such a good mood? You know, the news has been horrible this week. Well, I'm just happy to be alive and thinking of all the things the Lord has done for me. The people of God were eager for God's truth and for His Word. They were eager for each other. They were eager to worship God and all of this culminated for them in an eagerness to take out, to carry out God's mission. You see, this is why we speak so much of community. Some of you may have heard me speak about this, about how community is important here at Christ Church. Community is not important primarily so that we can be happy. And so that we can be satisfied that we have friends. Those are good things. Community is important because as much as we are a group of people who sit around a table, we are all of us, even the smallest of us, we are mighty warriors in a mighty army that is advancing to vanquish the kingdom of Satan in our midst. And if we are going to do that, We must be united and we must be passionate and we must know the mission and want to carry it out and know the one for whom we are carrying it out. For he enables us. And that's what marked the early church. They were eager for God's mission. You see, their community led to mission both within and without. Inside the church, it led to mission as they were joyful and generous amongst one another. They literally had generosity of heart, joy of heart. This is what it means to do ministry inside the church, to encourage one another, to equip one another, 
to help one another. But they didn't just keep it inside. Oh, no. The ministry led out. It led outside the community. And God blessed their endeavors. They went out in the temple daily. They went out in groups. And they encouraged one another. And they preached the gospel. And they gave testimony. And the Lord gave them not only grace in the church, but grace outside the church. He gave them goodwill. They had favor with the people. The word there for favor is the word grace. God gave them gracious speech. He gave them gracious mannerisms so that people listened and they heard and they were brought in to the body because God was calling in his people and no one could stop that. Witnessing for them was a part of their daily life. Would that that would be a part of our daily life. Do you go through days where you don't even think about witnessing? If you don't, you're better than I am. Because your pastor does. You get tied up in things, things get busy, family. But we must constantly have that mindset. Not that we must witness to every single person we bump into, but that anyone we bump into could be someone the Lord is putting in our path. And we must be ready. This is a mission we are on. We are advancing as a mighty army. And God blessed their efforts in adding daily to the church. Now, this is something else that is very interesting. And would that the 21st century church would understand this. The 3,000 that were saved, they were added to the church. They weren't given a card and see you later and set to float off somewhere where they could be taken upon by Muslims or Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or secularists. No, they were brought into a nourishing, nurturing environment. This is the perfect passage to say that there are no Lone Ranger Christians, ever. This church did not have great organization. It did not have everything tidy and neat. It didn't have a budget. It didn't have a denomination. It was a church that would grow. And everyone that was saved was added to the church. If you were saved, you were a part of the church. You were a part of the mission. This is what we are called to do. To make people a part of the church. That doesn't mean they have to be in these pews. But if you have a friend who is not a part of a church... Or maybe if you are not a part of a church, you must want to unite with God's people. This is a call to unity of mission. The last thing that we want to see is that these apostles understood, these disciples understood, these converts understood that all of this was in God's hands. That it was God who worked. That it was God who was at work in his word. It was God who was at work in bringing them together. It was God who was at work in giving them boldness. It was God who was at work in uniting them in worship. It was God who was at work in saving souls. They were merely channels. Is that what you desire? Do you desire to hear about mighty signs and wonders after a fashion?
done through you instead of by you? You see, we are just channels for God's work. But we must be obedient and move forward with unity of purpose. In conclusion, this picture, this still frame, this teaser trailer that we see in Acts 2, describes for us not a perfect church, but it is a church that we should emulate and model, that we should seek to be like in all of our relationships, in all of our ways. It's been put this way. The wonderful commentator John Stott says this. He says, there is something about relationship in every aspect of this text. He says, first, the church was related to the apostles by way of submission to their authority. Secondly, they were related to each other by way of love. Third, they were related to God by way of awe and worship. And finally, they were related to the world by way of outreach. That is our call, beloved, to be the church of Jesus Christ, to be united, to be on a mission, and to cultivate those relationships that God would give to us.